All right, well, let's, uh, let's dig into Exodus chapter 2 this morning. Um, when, when Beth and I were first married, we decided for our honeymoon, we were going to drive down into the States uh, to a place that we love, a beautiful place called Grand Teton National Park, and, and camp there for a couple of days and just get out into the wilderness. And I was in college, so we didn't have a whole lot of money, uh, nor did we have a whole lot of time to spare. We just wanted to get down there quick and enjoy what time we had. And this was the first time that either of us had really done a road trip where we were the ones just responsible to get where we needed to go. Uh, there was nobody else. We were on our own. And uh, back in those days, for some of you younger folk, um, you have to understand this was before that strange and mystical thing called Google Maps. We didn't have that. Uh, that hadn't been invented yet. Uh, we didn't even have cell phones with us. Back in those days, driving involved a piece of paper that you would unfold and it would cover up half of the windshield and all of the passenger side window. And, uh, and, and you would, this of course was before distracted driving was a thing, that wasn't a problem. Um, and it was like a giant printout of Google Maps. We called it Maps. It's amazing. Um, but it had some shortcomings. Uh, it had some downfalls. For one thing, when you opened maps, um, the only way to zoom in was to move your face closer to the map. That's all you had. That was it. Um, it also missing that, that little blue triangle that tells you where you're at. Um, you had to figure that out on your own. You had to look at the towns and look actually out the window and figure out where you were. And it also didn't have that nice little blue line that showed you where you were going and how to get there. You had to make that up on your own. You had to figure out your own way. And if somehow you managed to get off the route you had chosen, um, you wouldn't know. You, there wasn't a little voice that said, recalculating and giving you an updated ETA, um, you might not know for a long time. And so you had to pay attention. And so as my wife and I were driving along on this road trip with the massive map sprawled out across the dash, uh, we saw the most terrifying road sign, the most hated of all road signs, detour ahead. And the nice, smooth freeway that we've been clipping along at like 125 because it's the States and you can do that, um, went down to like this grooved, rough pavement and then eventually like just a dirt trail. It was unbelievable. I, the, the ruts were deep enough. We actually scraped the bottom of uh, her parents' car a couple of times. And, and then we finally came to the worst of all detour here turn off. When we turned off of the interstate, there was no road sign. There was no towns around. We had no idea where we were or how to get back on the route that we had chosen. Um, we were stuck down the middle of central Montana, um, totally lost. And we meandered our way through these little back country roads. And I don't remember the details, but it was definitely hours, not minutes. And we were late, late, late by the time we got to our destination, frustrated and tired. Uh, nobody likes a detour. By definition, it's, it's out of the way. It's not where we plan to go. It's added time. It's added driving. And, and it's frustrating. And sometimes it's scary. And yet, how often, as we read through Scripture, does God take his children down these divinely appointed detours? I think this week, as we look at uh, Exodus 2, we're going to see that. The beginning of Exodus 2, the first 10 verses, uh, we looked at last week. We see the Lord kind of flexing his muscles a little bit. 
He's showing how he works through weakness and how he works even through the wickedness of Pharaoh to bring about his good plan to protect Moses and and to raise up this rescuer for Israel. And this week in chapter 2, we see God sending Moses on this divine detour. Open your Bibles with me if you would. If you don't have a Bible on you, just slip up your hand. One of our ushers will grab you a Bible. We want you to have God's Word open on your lap, um, that that we do not uh, walk away from here thinking, boy, that's what John said, but that's what God's Word says. That's the goal. Um, Exodus chapter 2, we're going to read all the way down to verse 25 um, today, but let's just do it a chunk at a time. So starting at verse 11, it says, One day Moses... When Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. Let's pause there. I think in these first few verses, 11 to 14, we see the need to be patient with God's plan. Be patient with God's plan. Verse 11 picks up at the end of what are called Moses' silent years. Uh, Verse 10, um, Moses was about five years old. Verse 11, um, he's a grown-up. If we uh, skip ahead to Acts 7, um, Stephen, um, preaching to the Pharisees before he's stoned, uh, retells the story of Moses, and, and he tells us that Moses here is now 40 years old. He's not a kid. He's, he's a grown man in Pharaoh's household now. He had been through the finest education system the world had at that time. He'd been trained, no doubt, in history and languages and warfare, among other things. And it's at 40 years old, it says, that Moses goes out and looks on the burdens of his people. Such an interesting dynamic here. Uh, Moses had been living among the Egyptians, living in luxury, comfort in the palace. Uh, He was probably even served by Hebrew slaves. And yet he's clearly aware that he is a Hebrew. He's not an Egyptian. He doesn't belong there. Uh, Twice in this first couple verses, it says, his people... And then it says he looked on their burdens. And the word looked there is a strong word. Uh, it's a word that involves empathy moving to action. It's not a passive word. He's, he's moved by it. He sees and he's, and he's drawn into action. He just can't take it anymore. And as he's looking, he sees this uh, Egyptian slave master beating one of the slaves, one of his Hebrew brothers. And again, if we peek forward to the book of Acts, um, Stephen tells us that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that, that in killing this Egyptian, Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that he was bringing them salvation by God's hand. He, he was God's rescuer for Israel. He seems to have some idea of that, and, and he's right. So he steps up, he jumps into action to, to set them free, but this isn't the way God was doing it. This wasn't God's plan. Moses did not trust God's plan. How you kids doing? Did you get that one? Moses did not trust God's plan. He's not doing what the Lord had directed. He's, he's doing it on his own timing, according to his own wisdom, his own strength. 
and immediately it begins to backfire. The very next day he went out and two of the Hebrew men are fighting. And he says to the one in the wrong, why are you striking your brother? And the man shot back, uh, who made you prince and judge over us, right? We would say, who died and made you king? Ouch. I mean, Moses was, I'm sure, proud of himself. He came in as this hero to rescue his brothers. He's done what, was, what needed to be done. But instead of trusting God, he was, he was doing it his own way. And, and he was actually disobeying God, trying to fulfill God's plan. And it didn't work out so well. They reject him as leader. Kids, do you think God ever asks you to do something that requires you to sin in order to do it? No, I don't think so either. Think of it like this. What if, what, if, what if there was a big spill of spaghetti sauce in the middle of the kitchen floor? Somebody dropped a pot and it just went everywhere. And your dad says, uh, Haley, wipe up the spaghetti sauce on the floor. And you said, okay, I can do that. And you're, you're good. I'm going to obey. I'm going to do the right thing. And you wiped up the spaghetti sauce, but you used your dad's absolute best Sunday shirt. Now, in your case, we know it's a Rough Rider shirt, so maybe that's okay. Uh, <laughs> off track. Um, Use dad's best Sunday shirt to wipe up the spaghetti sauce. Now you did what dad asked. Do you think dad's going to be happy? No. No, how you do it matters too, doesn't it? God was going to use Moses to rescue Israel. But instead of waiting for God to do it, instead of waiting on God's plan and God's timing, what does Moses do? What's Moses' sin? One of the kids got it? What's Moses' sin? What does he do? Yeah. He kills the Egyptian. We call that murder. That's a big deal. That's not okay. What do you think Moses should have done? Just trusted God? Waited on God's plan? He had the right end goal in mind, but his pride and his, his restlessness, he tried, to, he tried to get in. He tried to fix this on his own, take his own path, and he ends up on a sinful path. We need to be patient in God's plan. What things do you desire in your life that, that maybe God hasn't done yet? Maybe you hoped to have been married by now. That's a good thing to desire. There's nothing wrong to desire that. But you want it so badly, you're, you're willing to take a sinful path to get there. You're willing to consider dating an unbeliever. Get out from looking for a spouse in the church among the people of God and maybe the bar has some options. Maybe you're willing to overlook godly counsel and wisdom of people who love you. Even engage in impure and immoral behavior because if I don't, this probably will end, right? There's nothing wrong with desiring to be married. There's nothing wrong with pursuing that. But are you willing to do it according to God's plan? Are you willing to do it God's way. Maybe you thought you'd be financially stable by now or that you would be further ahead in your career. I thought I'd be kind of higher up the chain by now. Nothing wrong with that. But to get to that end, you've got to push family and church and if you're honest, God himself a little further down on the priority list so that you can put in more hours and be more productive and, and get more done and impress the boss and climb the ladder. He's got to, I got to do what needs to be done. You got to provide for the family, 
Again, that's not a bad thing necessarily, but it matters how you get there. Kids, what are the things you really want? In, in my house, it's typically more screen time, all right? A unicorn? Okay, that might prove troublesome. Um, maybe, it's a, maybe it's a toy that you saw in the store that you really wanted. It's the one, it's the perfect one, and, and mom said no. Not bad things to want. But what if then you want that so bad that you are willing to sneak the iPad into your room and play it under the covers? Or maybe even when mom's not looking, you take the toy off the shelf and tuck it into your jacket. You're willing to sin to get it. We need to learn to trust God. We need to learn to wait on His plan. Whatever it is that you desire, whatever it is that you're trying to get in this life, think about this. If you're willing to sin in order to get it, to disobey God to get that thing, then it's become an idol for you. You've put it above God. You're willing, you, you prove that in your willingness to disobey God, to damage your relationship with God to get closer to that thing. Be patient in God's plan. Trust Him. Wait on Him. Uh, that doesn't mean not to be ambitious, to go after things with passion and, and drive. It doesn't mean we're just lazy and passive. But we want to keep those priorities in order. God is what I desire most. And God has called me to, to be involved in shepherding my family and caring for my family. I can't just, I can't just leave that, abandon that. Do it God's way, do it in a way that trusts Him and obeys Him and honors Him above anything else. He knows what's best. Living in obedience to God will always, hear that, living in obedience to God will always bring about your greatest ultimate joy. Do you believe that? That gets really tricky sometimes when you're staring down a hard decision. I really think this is better. I think this is what I want. And yet, there's sin involved over here. So I trust God that it will be more joy, more fulfilling to obey Him, to honor Him. Moses failed. He failed to be patient in God's plan. And because of Moses' sin, God takes him on this, this divine detour off into Midian. He's forced to flee out of Egypt but God's still working. He's still working toward his, his goal. God is still right along on his course. And as we look here at verses 15 to 22, we see the need to be humble in God's preparation. Moses had just killed uh, the Egyptian. And in verse 15, it says, when, Mo, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, he said, how is it that you're home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered our flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may come and eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. 
In these verses, we see the call to be humble in God's preparation. God uses this this detour to humble and prepare Moses for the work that that he has in store. Moses' life breaks down into these kind of 40-year sections, first growing up in Egypt, and then this period of wandering in Midian, and then leading the Israelites through the wilderness. And uh, James Boyce puts it this way. He says that Moses spent 40 years being made into something, and then 40 years learning that he was nothing. And then 40 years showing that God was everything. 40 years being made into something. 40 years learning that he was nothing. And then 40 years showing that God was everything. And so this is the 40 years here of, of learning that he's nothing. Of just being humbled and crushed. Moses' sin was found out. And it seems that when he looked this way and that, he was looking for Egyptians who would turn him in, not for Hebrews. And one of his own Hebrew brothers ratted him out to Pharaoh. And it's not that hard to imagine that they would have been bitter against Moses. Think about it, kids. How would you feel? You're working as a slave hard every day. You're living in this little tiny mud hut, barely enough to eat. It's dirty. It's hard. It's painful. And your cousin Moses lives in the palace. He has every cool toy. He never has to do chores. Everybody takes care of him. Um, You think he might be a little jealous? You might kind of think, what's the deal with him? Why should I cover his tracks? Why should I stick up for him? He's not like us. What's he ever done for me? So his people didn't like him very much, and then neither did Pharaoh. It's not hard to imagine that Moses, as a prince in Egypt, uh, would have been not too far out of line culturally to beat one of the slave masters as a prince. And, and if that slave master happened to die, um, I don't think that's too huge a deal for a prince in that day. Um, culturally speaking, not saying it's okay, uh, but that's the way they worked. They, they, they were lower than you. As a prince, as royalty, you can do that. But I think Pharaoh's beginning to realize that he's created a bit of a monster here. He might be in trouble This Hebrew child has grown up in his courts. He's been trained in his schools. And now he's a man of impressive stature. It's kind of like owning a pit bull or maybe a tiger as a pet. Like it's pretty cool as long as he's your friend. But the moment that thing looks at you sideways, you better act swiftly and decisively. And I think that's what Pharaoh's doing here. This could go sideways really fast for him. I think he's probably been waiting for Moses to mess up. He's just waiting for an opportunity uh, to get him out of here. And so Pharaoh, who was ready to deal with Moses swiftly, chases him out. He sets out to kill him. And all of a sudden, Moses, who at least in his own mind, he, he used to belong in both places. He belonged in Pharaoh's palace and he belonged among the Hebrews. Now, all of a sudden, he belongs nowhere. He has no place. He's been rejected by both. And he fled out of Egypt and not just a little way. Uh, he went a long ways. He landed in Midian. Um, we can throw that map up. Um, all right. So kids, you got some white boxes. If you look over this one over here, that's Egypt. That's where he started. That's where the Israelites are at and Pharaoh. Uh, up on the top over there, that's Israel. It's not Israel yet. It's Canaan right now. You can write either Israel or Canaan. Uh, it'll be Israel when they get there. And then down in the bottom over here, that's Midian. And if you notice the, the, the bar on the bottom, the measurement, that's 100 miles for every one of those. That's a long way. Um, I, I did the old hold your pencil up to the measuring stick at the bottom and try to figure out. Um, I figure he walked just about 400 miles. That's like 
Six and a half hour drive. So, uh, Marlena, when you guys went up north for Christmas, did you go through Grand Prairie? You didn't go through Grand Prairie? Oh, close though. Don't you go past Grand Prairie? Oh, I'm totally lost then. Well, it's like as far as Grand Prairie. All right, Andrew, when you go to visit your grandma, do you, you go through Swift Current? Yeah, you do. Thank you. <laughs> okay? It's past Swift Current. Uh, for my kids, when we drive to see Nana and Boompa, it's, it's past Cold Lake. That's how far he walked. That's crazy. He went a long ways. He's getting way out of there. And he got to Midian, he ends up at a well. And, and we're introduced to a new character in the story here, the priest of Midian. Uh, his name is Ruel. And uh, later he's going to be called Jethro. Don't get confused. It's the same guy. Um, Jethro might be a title, we think, like a, um, a, a title of honor. But anyway, uh, he's a priest among the Midianites. So the Midianites were descendants of Abraham. Um, when Sarah died, Abraham married a new wife named Keturah, and one of their children was Midian. And so here are the Midianites. They have some connection to God. These stories passed down from their father and grandfather, Abraham. Uh, we don't know what. This is kind of all we know. But the point of the story here, what we see is humility beginning already to build in Moses. Ruel's seven daughters came to the well. Uh, they did the hard work of pulling up gallons of water for the flock. And these other shepherds come along, these bullies come and they chase them away. No, no, no. Thanks for the water. We're going to feed our sheep here. You girls get out of the way. And so Moses, we know, we've seen already, he has this strong sense of justice. He stands up for people that are being bullied and oppressed. Uh, and so he comes in. But this time, uh, it's different. This time there's self-control and there's humility here. He, he doesn't kill anyone. That's a step up. And he chases off the shepherds and then he proceeds to draw water from the well to refill the trough um, for Ruel's daughters. Now think about it. That's a rough job. Uh, I grew up with chickens down the trail behind our house. And that was one of my jobs was to fill two five-gallon pails. Okay, half fill two five-gallon pails and carry them down the trail and fill up the chicken waters. Water's heavy. Uh, and, and this water didn't come from the tap at the back of the house. Um, we don't know about this well specifically, um, but Jacob's well in Israel dug years before this. Um, archaeologists have looked at it. They figure it's about 135 feet deep. That's a long ways down. This old rough rope weaved out of grasses, fibers, pulling the water up out of the bottom of the well. That's a rough job. Moses is a prince. He's been pampered. When he wants water, he goes like this. He doesn't say water, please. He says water now. That's been his life. This might be the first time he's ever pulled water up from a well. And he does it for a bunch of animals and some women. He's serving them in a big way. Naturally, when the daughters go home and tell their father about this, he thinks that guy is son-in-law material. I want that, gentlemen. You want to impress some father-in-laws? There's, the, uh, there's the way to do it. Uh, so they, they bring him home. They invite him in for dinner. And, uh, and he likes it. He stays. He, he moves in. He ends up marrying uh, Ruel's daughter, Zipporah, and, and he settles into life as a shepherd. It's a long way from where he started. This palace in the richest nation the world had ever seen to the tents of this wandering shepherd people in the desert. Here's the thing. The Lord doesn't waste anything. The Lord doesn't waste anything. 
Even detours with the Lord are, are carefully used. God is humbling Moses. He's refining Moses. He's shaping him into the man that he needs him to be for what he has in store. It's interesting how often God is referred to as shepherd over his people. Jacob on his deathbed says, the Lord has been my shepherd all my life until this day. David, who was himself a shepherd, says in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Jeremiah 31, the Lord says that he will keep his people like a shepherd keeps his flock. And of course, Jesus called himself the the good shepherd. In the palaces of Egypt, Moses learned how to rule like a king, like a prince. But God needed Moses to go to the desert to learn to lead people like a shepherd. Teach him how to shepherd a people. Shepherds live among the sheep. Shepherds smell like sheep. It's not an honored position. It's a lowly, humble position. It's not a position of ordering and directing and being served. It's a position of serving. And look at the final outcome. Verse 22 is significant. Zipporah, his wife, gave birth to a son, and Moses called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Literally, Gershom means foreigner there. How'd you like that for a name? Foreigner there. Um, but Moses now understood himself as a foreigner. It's interesting, it's not clear if he's talking about himself as a foreigner in Midian, or if he's actually pointing back to his time in Egypt and recognizing, I was a foreigner there. I didn't belong there. Either way, he's finally realizing that he's part of these people. He's like them. He's a foreigner. He's an outsider. Moses was supposed to have this corporate solidarity with the people of Israel. He was supposed to be united with them, and he's been failing to live that out, and now he's beginning to identify with them. For the first time, he understands himself as a a foreigner, a sojourner, and not just the one who would come and rescue them, but one of them. God's detour was perfectly orchestrated, working in Moses these traits that, that God honors, that God desires to see preparing Moses for this next season of Moses' life. And don't overlook the fact, this is not a small detour. This is 40-year detour in Midian, watching sheep, kids, 40 years, long time, short time? Long time. This is a long time. I remember when I was your age, I thought 40 was really old. It's not that old anymore. You'll be surprised. 40's not that old. Um, how many times do you think Moses was out there in the wilderness, in the desert, surrounded by a bunch of sheep, remembering his past life of privilege, remembering his people suffering back in Egypt, looking around and thinking, God, what are you doing? Why am I here? I'm made for more than this. Why are we wasting time? There's important things to be done. What are you doing, God? God's detours, as he works in us, forms us, shapes us, they require humility, patience. Moses, once again, is a picture of Christ. He's a picture of Christ. Not that Jesus needed to be humbled, but Jesus walked the path of humility, becoming like those that he came to save. Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, 
He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be clung on to. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself, being obedient to the cross, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus had a rightful place in God's kingdom, in his heavenly kingdom. It wasn't a borrowed place. He wasn't like Moses who didn't really belong there. That was his home. He gave up unimaginable majesty and luxury. Think about that. The infinite God, the second person of the Trinity, the one who is completely without need. He doesn't depend on anything for his existence. The one who is unbound by time and space, who rules supreme and unchallenged, that God condescended to the restrictions of human flesh. The frailty. For the first time, he was thirsty. He needed something. More than that, he subjected himself to wicked oppression and abuse by sinful men and ultimately to the wrath of God, which he did not deserve, paying the penalty for our sin, setting us free from our slavery. That's the humility of Christ. That's the detour that God had planned. And I want to be careful when I say detour, it's not God. Uh, God doesn't see it as a detour. It's not a surprise to God. It only is for us. You might be turning your map upside down and sideways. Where am I going? What am I doing here? God, what's the plan? You're trying to figure out how did I get here? Where am I going? You're lost. God's not. God had a plan for Moses. God had a plan for Jesus. God has a plan for you. You might be tempted Scream out sometimes, God, what am I doing here? Why are we wasting time? Where are you taking me? Where's this all going? Am I just spinning my wheels? Be humble in God's detours. Trust him. He's taking you down that path for a reason. He has you where he has you for a purpose. He's using this season in your life to refine you, to prepare you, to work in you, to sanctify you, to make you holy. Be humble in that. Embrace that. It might be 40 years. It might be more than that. You may not know where he's taking you until you get to eternity. But look at your life and ask, how can I make the absolute most of where I am now? How does God want me to grow here? Why does he have me here? What do I need to learn? What do I need to, to grow in? How can I come to know the Lord more deeply or trust him more fully in a way that is unique to this situation? Because God has put me in this unique situation for a unique purpose. Don't just sit around and wait for the season to be over. Don't just always be trying to get out of it. Engage it. Ask God, what's what's the plan here? Glorify God in it wherever he's put you. Use it and and let the Lord use it in you to form you, to shape you into the image of Christ. That's the end goal. We know that. Be patient in God's plan. Be humble in God's detour. And then finally, be hopeful in God's promise. Be hopeful in God's promise. Verses 23 to 25. Let me read these for us. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. 
And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Be hopeful in God's promise. First thing we're reminded here is that it's been many days. Many days. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, but his timing is not our timing. It's been a while. And it's significant that the king of Egypt died. Um, this would have given the Israelites this glimmer of hope. They would have been waiting for this for many years because when a king died, it was common that as a new king took their place, they would make some significant changes in the empire and, and slaves would be set free. Death sentences would be overlooked. It, it would be a significant change. This is why Moses is able to come back because that Pharaoh is dead and so his death sentence is now dropped. So they would have been waiting. Maybe when this Pharaoh dies will be released. And when it doesn't happen, um, they fall even deeper into despair. And it says they cried out. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And right here is this seismic shift in the book of Exodus. This is a turning point. Um, this is the end now of the introduction. The setup is over. The landscape has been laid. Now God is about to move. Verses 24 and 25 have four key verbs. Kids, your parents have been out of school too long. Help them out. What's a, what's a verb? Andrew, do you know what a verb is? Marlena, can you help with a verb? Uh-oh. Good? No, that's a noun. What's a verb? Oh, boy. You guys have been out of school too long. It's been a whole weekend. A verb is an action word, Right? Something's happening. There's movement. When you're reading narratives, when you're reading stories in the Bible, watch for verbs. Verbs are key. Verbs tell you stuff. There's four key verbs here, and they're significant. Look at verse 24. Now I'm going to test you again, kids. What's the first verb in verse 24 there? God what? Not yet. Heard. God heard. He heard their groaning. You're going to see these verbs growing as we go through. They get more intense and more significant. And this is the most generic. This is the most general. Uh, it's pretty simple. The, the sound of their groaning entered God's ears, if it were. God, God doesn't have ears, but he heard them. And yet what an amazing thing. Psalm 34, listen to this. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. What an amazing thing that God hears. When you cry out in suffering, when your heart is broken, when you're sad, when you're crushed in spirit, God hears you. When you pray to him, God hears. That's amazing. But not only does God hear, what's the next verb from God there? This is the one, Marlena. Yeah. He remembered. He heard, and then he remembered. And the idea here isn't just a casual remembering. It's not that God forgot. God doesn't forget things. Uh, it's about bringing it to the front of his mind. This is foremost in his thinking. And this is what he remembered, his covenant. His covenant. 
Uh, This is a huge word through the book of Genesis. It shows up 25 times in 50 chapters. It's all over the place in Genesis. And and it's connected with God's promise of sending the the Redeemer, the Rescuer, that God is building this covenant with his people. And and I look for what's a good definition of covenant, and I remembered a great one, and, and I found it in a book that many of you have read. How many of you have read the Jesus Storybook Bible or had it read to you? Hands up. Andrew, I know you had it read to you. Yeah. Okay, if you don't have the Jesus Storybook Bible, go ahead and get it. Um, It is a great little kid's book. And parents, you will secretly learn a lot about God's word as you read to your kids. And kids, you'll see how every story in the Bible whispers the name of Jesus and sets up for the coming of this rescuer. Uh, If you have grandkids who are friends whose whose parents aren't believers, this is a really good way to get the gospel into a home. Um, It's a beautiful book. And uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones is the author, and she defines covenant this way. Listen, it's a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's God's covenant. A never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's what God had promised to his people. That's what he's remembering now when they're in Egypt, that I have given this people my never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. He's not giving up on them. He's not letting them go out this way. He remembers his covenant, his promises to them. And he's, he's putting it back then on his own character, right? What's he saying? If they don't get rescued, what does that say about me as a God? I'm a useless God if I don't follow through, if I can't save my covenant people. God heard and God remembered his covenant. And then God remembered, what did he do next? What's the next verb there? Somebody see it? What? He saw. He saw the people. And I think this is really cool. It took me a minute to figure this one out. Okay, a minute. It took me a long time to figure this one out. The word that he uses here is the same word that is used of Moses back in verse 11. Moses saw an Egyptian beating the Hebrew. And remember what I said, it's more than just a simple saw. There's a, there's a deepness to this word. It's an action word. It saw and it moved him to action. What did Moses do when he saw the Egyptian beating the Hebrew? killed him. He jumped into action and he killed him. Now the Lord has seen the suffering of his people. God's about to act. It is about to go down. This is that moment in the movie when the music is just electric and you're on the edge of your seat and you've got tears just about in your eyes because the hero is coming. It's about to come together. The hero is on his way. And where Moses failed, the Lord would not fail. He has seen the suffering of his people and he's going to act. Of course, right around the corner, next week, we're going to get into chapter three and the Lord calls the newly humbled, newly refined and prepared Moses, not to do it on his own strength, but to be God's representative to rescue his people. Coming in God's power. And and he doesn't just rescue his people, right? God makes this fight way bigger than it ever needed to be. God makes a statement here. 
I don't just rescue my people. I obliterate their enemies. I will destroy those who stand against me and who stand against my people. And then the last verb, it seems so simple. God saw and then what? Somebody say it. God, he knew. He knew. Seems like we're missing something, doesn't it? What, what did God know? He knew, that's it? He just, he just knew? How's that helpful? But the Jews reading this would have seen something that we don't. They would have understood there ought to be a big fat exclamation mark at the end of that sentence. This is a key word of God's plan of salvation. It means so much more than just this intellectual knowing. God is omniscient. He knows everything. There is nothing that he does not know. But this knowing is a personal, emotional, intimate, committed knowing. We talked a bit at the conference a couple weeks ago about when you see a word show up the first time in Scripture, that kind of sets the tone for how a word is, is used The first place this word shows up is Genesis 4.1. Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore a son. That's part of the breadth of this word. It is a intimate, loving, personal knowledge. That's what's meant in Amos 3.2 when the Lord said to Israel, you alone have I known among all the families of the earth. Question, how many of the other families of the earth does the Lord know exist? All of them? All of them? He knows how many hairs are on each of their heads. He knows everything, but Israel alone he has known. Known means chosen, loved, cherished. He knew them. Saying God set his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love on them. He knew them and it would, he would certainly rescue them. He's saying, you're mine. I've got you. Let's jump forward. Romans 8, 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, those he justified, he also glorified. In an intellectual sense, God knows every human being, every person who ever lives. Yet it says his children, his church, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be saved, to be conformed to the image of Christ. They alone has he foreknown. What a richness. We can be certain. And and, and Paul writes in this passage in the past tense, um, not all of it is done yet, but he's so confident in God working out his plan. He puts it in the past tense. He says, for he foreknew, those he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he also called, called to be With him called to salvation, those he called, he also justified. He wiped away their sin. He declared them righteous. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's looking forward to eternity. That finished work of salvation when we're with him in heaven. He's placed his 
never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love on them. We know we have this rock-solid hope in God's promises. Are you God's child? Do you know Him? More importantly, does He know you? If you're known by God, nothing else matters. Everything else is peripheral. If you're known by God, no no detour in this life should ever shake your hope. The Lord hears you. The Lord will remember His covenant with you that we have in Him, His new covenant in Christ. That He sees you, that He'll act for the good of those who love Him. And most importantly, you're known by Him. He will not only begin this good work in you. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What an amazing promise. 1 Thessalonians 5, a similar promise. Now may the God of peace sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. What an amazing promise we have. Do you find hope in that? Do you stand confident in that? I ask the worship team to join me up here. Let me ask you, do you trust in God? Do you really believe that he's at work in your life? Do you trust him enough to wait patiently on his plan, even though things aren't going on the timing that you'd like and things aren't moving as fast as you want, do you trust him to wait? Do you trust him enough to be humble in his preparation? Trust him wherever he takes you, embrace the detours, expecting God is working in me. He's brought me here for a purpose. And do you trust him enough to be hopeful in his promises To be confident that he who began this good work will see it through to the end. I know my destination. I know where my God is taking me. I'll trust him wherever he leads. I'm going to take a few minutes uh, before we close in song just to to go to some quiet time of reflective prayer. We just go before the Lord right now in humility. Maybe you need to confess, God, I've not been patient. You know how bad I want that and I've been really tempted. Maybe I've even gone ahead and made that an idol in my life. You need to entrust yourself to him again and to his timing. Maybe you need to ask God for humility. Whatever detour you find yourself on, God, use it. Humble me. Use it in my life. Whatever you need this season for to conform me more to the image of Christ. Maybe you need to just be reminded again of God's good promises, just to rest before him, to know again that he will work for your good, that he's faithful and he will do it.